This is the DevSecOps Days Podcast. DevSecOps Days Podcast is supported by OWASP, dedicated to enabling organizations to conceive, develop, acquire, operate, and maintain applications that can be trusted. And with support from the Sonatype Nexus platform, allowing companies to automatically control open source risk. This is Mark Miller, Editor-in-Chief and host of the DevSecOps Days podcast series. This is our sixth broadcast in the Epic Failures in DevSecOps series. Please subscribe to the broadcast on DevSecOpsDays.com in order to receive notice of upcoming broadcasts and free workshops. In today's show, I'm talking with Chris Roberts, who contributed We Are All Special Snowflakes chapter in the newly released Epic Failures in DevSecOps book. Chris, I always get a chuckle when I read that title. What the hell were you thinking of? (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's you've been in this industry as as, as long as I haven't. Yeah, we're both sitting here sporting gray hair, for goodness sakes. And it was very much a case of for so many years, we've spent so long going, oh, you have to listen to us. You know, we, we have all the knowledge. We have all the IT knowledge. We have all the infosec knowledge. We're special. Everybody has to listen to us. Whereas the rest of the business is going, hang on, we've been doing this shit for, you know, 100, 200, mm-hmm. X hundred years. Why do we need to listen to you damn special snowflakes? And it was very much, it was kind of like taking the some of the, I guess the wordage that gets used against, you know, the millennials or the X, Y, gen facts or whatever it is. I'm going, you know what? As an industry, we need to take an introspective look at ourselves and go, we really treat ourselves like special snowflakes and we just need to quit that shit. When you and I first met, it was literally online. We started trading messages back and forth when I was building the DevSecopoly board and you were building the the bingo card, the bang word bingo or whatever the hell you were calling it. And then we worked together in London for the first DevSecOps days in London and hit it off right away. I mean, I think our voices, your and my voices are relatively similar here. Yeah, I would wholeheartedly agree. I mean, that 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 flipping Monopoly board of yours was just fantastic. Um, I, I still love it. I've got my copy. It's up on the wall over there. <laughs> um, it's brilliant. And it was, I mean, we have that same kind of attitude. It's it's the ability not just to get into the organizations and in, into the technology and into the industry, but it's also to take that step back and go, something's not working. I, mm-hmm. I think I know what it is and I've got an idea what it is and I want other people to help me figure out what it is but how do we change what we're doing rather than just keep on going and milking the cow or whatever you want to say and saying okay we'll keep taking an you know let's keep taking a paycheck it's like no let's let's quit this shit we've got to do something better and we have to differently and that was the fantastic thing of you know the stuff that you do with DevSecOps days you know in London was amazing the RSA stuff just even catching up with you and the crew at RSA but London was fantastic Mm -hmm. because I got to see it firsthand where it wasn't just security, it was gathering all these teams together to go, hey, how do we do something differently? I mean, it's a fantastic message, and it's one that, you know, everybody really needs to hear out there. And in London specifically, we had some really nice conversations. John Willis came over with us. Aubrey Stern was there, which was remarkable. And it's like you said, there is a co-mingling of the tribes when we start working with DevSecOps. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, Aubrey is, 
absolutely fantastic. I mean, it, it, she's another one of those people that is, you really, when she speaks, you need to sit down, shut up, and just listen. And it's blunt, and it's real, and it's what we all need to hear. The challenge is, I think, to some degree, industry has has unfortunately spent 20 plus years of listening to us and we haven't really succeeded. And it's like, how do we do it differently? And it's not just, it goes back to this, how is it not just us doing it differently? How do we bring everybody along with it? You know, the development teams, the operational teams, IT, OT, depends on who it is. And by the way, we also need to rope in everybody else, you know, HR, finance, legal, you name it, you get it. This is everybody's problem. And you've only got to look at the statistics and go, you know, this isn't changing. It's getting worse. How do we all deal with it? And deal with it in the context of how do we just keep the business running at the same time? You also participated with us in All Day DevOps, which <sighs> yeah. is, you know, it's my baby. I always see it as a nice thing to have 30,000 people join you online. <laughs> but one of the things that came out of that was exactly what we're talking about. We had 800 people show up for a viewing party in a single location in yes. Dallas. And one of the things that came out of there was everybody's talking about cultural transformation, but who is talking to the leadership and the management who's supposed to be hurting this transformation? Yeah, I, that's, a, that's a huge part of it. It's you know, something, again, you know, you look at what you're doing, you look at what I'm doing, and a number of us in this industry, it isn't just talking to the same people, it is getting out there to leadership, it is getting out there to senior management, getting online, getting into, uh, you know, it's, it's us breaking out of our mold. Perfect example, you know, 25 years we've been on stage at DEF CON, 26 years on stage at DEF CON, saying the same stuff, shit's broken, we need to fix it. We need to be going to the CISO forums, the healthcare forums, the management mm -hmm. forums. That you know, we need to get out of our own comfort zone, out of our own shell, and walk into those. But in order to do that, we have to be talking a language they understand. Again, not the special snowflake language that unfortunately we have been doing. We've walked in there, we've talked gibberish, sensible to us, gibberish to everybody else, and expect them to understand it. Whereas we should be going in and going, hey, let's talk about risks. Let's talk about the hundred things you have on your plate and where we play into that picture in a way that they understand. The only way that management is going to understand and get buy-in from my perception though, is if you can prove a specific ROI against business objectives. Is that even possible with what we're trying to do? Uh, I think uh, yes and no. I had a really good, um, there's, a, there's a group I belong to that's primarily run out of the West Coast. There's some amazing people on it. Uh, it's just some fantastic, some really fantastic voices. You've got a mix of like heads of industry in our industry, heads of just normal technical people, non-technical people. You've got investor guys in there and, and it's a very, very, really nice mix. And one of the questions that came up is, how do we talk to the board? How do we present ourselves to the board? How do we actually discuss what is going on? And, you know, is it numbers and statistics? Is it hearsay? Is it, hey, this is in the news? Is it, and it was really, really good. And a lot of it comes down to, can we help you understand business ROI using numbers and statistics? In other words, perfect example, you have a firewall, it isn't perfect, but at least it's doing something. Minus, I take it away from you. What happens? Business collapses potentially. Same thing with like you know the the security stuff, the safety side of the world. So, I can prove those statistics to some degree. 
it a lot of it let's face it a lot of what we do is risk mitigation wealth preservation you know that's mm -hmm. unfortunately we don't always as if we are protecting a company we're not necessarily generating revenue we're protecting the revenue we're doing risk mitigation risk control we're doing safety at the end of the day you know it's it's ot safety that leads to your participation in the epic failures in DevSecOps book when we first started putting that book together when i say we it was a stefan and DJ and Fabian, when we were in Singapore talking, and we said, you know, we need some kind of industry view. Okay? Yeah. And so we came to you and said, hey, can you give us an overview here? Can you talk a little bit about your chapter and give us an overview of what your chapter is about? Yeah. And, and, and it was, I mean, to be involved in it was absolutely amazing and, and one heck of an honor. And then it was like, you were like, hey, and, and it was to your point, it was like, hey, don't just talk about one incident give us an overview as to what's going on. And to me, that was fantastic because I've been very fortunate to work in everything from like retail, manufacturing, heavy industry, government, civilian, and all sorts of other things. And I've seen what has worked and definitely what has not worked, unfortunately, and, and also the consequences, you know, coming in with the broom and sweeping it up afterwards. So it was really nice to go, hey, here is industry. Industry has been around, you know, accounting has been around since, you know, X number of thousands BCE for crying out loud. We can't be expected to come in with 20 years experience and tell them how to run their business. But what we can do is come in and help them understand how the landscape has changed, how practices have changed, how work has changed. But we have to be able to do it in a manner that they understand back to the special snowflakes rather than coming in and, and going, hey, you know, everything you've done is changed and you can't do it. It's the perfect example, and I think the way I summed it up is, you look at the Industrial Revolution, you're looking at 200, 250 years of change that happened throughout most of the globe that fundamentally changed how we interact with each other, we interact with the world, we interact with technology. And we had several generations to get used to that. It wasn't just one and done. We had several generations of people learning to live with the technology. Whereas you look at what we've done, not just with IT, but InfoSec, the DevSec, DevSecOps, we've had 20 years or so, 30 years-ish, to suddenly realize that we're in the middle of all this and we're learning it as we're going along. We're making it up as we go along. And business is looking at us going, what the hell are you Yahoo's doing? And so we have to both figure it out as we're, as we're running along, try to keep up, and it's we are only trying to keep up with what the bad guys are doing, and at the same time, try to keep businesses running and keep them educated. It's, 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 a, you know, it's, it's not an easy, it's a thankless task. And we're not good at doing it without being, you know, a little, uh, a little blunt and possibly, you know, rubbing companies up the wrong way half the time, which is also part of the problem. The thing that stands out for me is that we've already been through the hype cycle of uh, cybersecurity and DevSecOps as far as, oh, it's going to be the be all and catch all of everything. Yeah. So we're now in the trough of disillusionment, which is good because that's where the real change starts from this trough. For me, what I'm looking at is the hype cycle was you can do all of this stuff at once. And the disillusionment is, no, you can't. Well, I, I think as well as that, I mean, you think about it, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, 
our industry walked into the CEO and the CFO's office and said, if you let me have a firewall, I'll fix it. 20 years ago, we walked in and said, hey, if you let me have an IDS, like 15 years ago, I'll fix it. 10 years ago, hey, give me DLP, I'll fix it. Five years ago, give me endpoint, I'll fix it. We haven't fixed it. It's got worse. And it's got worse because what we're trying to protect has, has grown exponentially. You know, again, you look at our industry 25, 30 years ago, I was in for a second and arguably we knew it all because there wasn't that much of it. You look at it now, the specializations in our industry alone, let alone the, 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 the ridiculous growth in data, industry, technology, and everything else around us means arguably no one person can know it all. And when a company comes along and says, oh, I can fix it all for you, the initial reaction from those of us who are old and gray is, bastards, we just want to taser you because you're lying. Right. You know, and, and unfortunately, you've got industry who's like, oh, they've just told us they can fix everything. Perfect. We'll, we'll bring them on board. And, you know, the rest of us are going, oh, good grief, another mess to clear up. Yeah, it's funny. I was just thinking I was CTO of a company a while back. And one of the things that would happen is uh, the CEO would read a magazine article and come in the next day and be all fired up. You've been there. You know what happens. <laughs> I've had those magazine articles left on my desk. Mm -hmm. Hey, can we look at this? I'll write back the following morning. No. <laughs> yeah, but you're right. I mean, and, and that's, uh, you know, and it's, it, again, where we are trying to do the right thing, and yet we're also shooting ourselves in the foot. You know, the, the marketing hype is unfortunately one of those things that frustrates the heck out of me. Everything from you know, the hooded shenanigans all the way through to I can solve your problem. I, I was in Madrid last year at a conference last year and I walked by this booth and it was a, a signpost and the first, and you know, it was like the first anti-hacking software and I'm like, I hate you. I hate you with a passion um, because people are walking up and going, hey, this is really cool. Can I buy it? And I'm like, you're buying snake oil. And oh. It yeah. is funny, Chris. When John Willis and I were at a, speaking at a conference in London, we went by a booth that had just a piece of paper, and it was written in red magic marker. It said, "Easy GDPR." <laughs> <laughs> and this was like a couple months before GDPR was coming out, and people were lining up to talk to this guy. Oh. <laughs> oh. Anyway. Yeah, I digress, but that's what this industry is. It always digresses. But that and 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 so on one part you're trying to do all this innovative stuff and on the other part you've got an entire piece of the industry that has built itself up on doing nothing more than auditing our own industry against ourselves and then the company believes that the audit's going to be secure so they don't want to deal with the industry and then you realize the audit's wrong so now government regulation comes in and puts more audit controls in place and you're like when is this mess actually going to end you know when when is the take when is the tower of babel actually going to fall it's um, a it's a hard discussion because the complexity is only going to get worse. And no matter what we do at this point, does it matter? Yes, obviously it does matter. This is what we're talking about. This is what we're trying to get across. But where do you start? What is the point at which you say, there's a cherry pick here that we should all be doing? 
OWASP tried to do it with the top 10, and we yeah. still have cross-site scripting. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> I, had, I was... I remember what the heck it was. I think it was on LinkedIn earlier on, uh, like a couple of weeks ago, and somebody put out another website. Oh, I know what it was. It was a blasted healthcare one. And they're like, oh, we are safe, secure, combined. I'm like, great. Flipping SQL injection. I'm like, you guys mm -hmm. are killing me. I mean, that's 15, 16 years now, give or take a bit. That I'm like, hey, And it's still in the top 10. Yeah. It's still in the top 10. Well, this later. this comes back to you know again some of the stuff that I think a lot of us have taken a step back from the industry and have gone you know what everybody's chasing the latest block this cipher this X Y Z whereas I can still break in with default passwords I can still break in with cross site with XML I can still break in with the human yes we fundamentally haven't fixed the basic stuff. We're chasing, we've ignored it. It's it's not sexy, it's not cool to do patching anymore. It's not cool to fix fundamental basic flaws issues to the users. Can I buy a shiny button that has got the easy button? Can I press one button and it will do it for me? Does a billion dollar risk factor play into this? Meaning, is the quantity of business value that's gonna get demolished actually going to be the thing that pushes this forward <sighs> i want to say yes but but history is not even on our side on that one i mean you know you, you look at it you know we'll pick some of the well-known some of the well-known attacks from last year and breaches from last year you know stock share price went down and then off it went again and it goes keeps on going back up again so you know yes it gets wiped out for a few days and then you know a couple of weeks a couple of months later the company does a mea culpa and, and everybody's all happy and there's an argument to say there's there's a level of correctness because in some cases the company has learned perfect example was target i mean target got its ass handed to it to their credit they took a step back and went what do we do wrong and how do we improve and now you look at the, the team they have around them and various other people they're kicking ass they learned they learned the hard way but now there's arguably no reason not to not to go deal with them because they learned and, and they've improved upon it, but other companies unfortunately haven't. I want to jump in very quick and do a quick plug for uh, the sessions that you're going to participate in in RSA because we do have two of those teams from Target coming to talk. Oh, no way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. I didn't know that. <laughs> I know. I mean, uh, it's, it's going to be exciting. We're going to be rolling out the announcement of the speakers by the end of the week, but Target is coming. Oh, uh, that's it's fantastic. It's going to be a great session. Yeah. I, I, I've i got a soft spot for some of those guys. Um, the, the Equifax thing, which is obvious uh, <laughs> a poster child for this, but Jamil is doing a good job over there now. They're really starting to make a difference. But one of the things that you and I talked about with John Willis in depth on stage in London was that the download patterns from open source software of the Struts 2 vulnerability in that component did not go down. The download pattern after the Equifax announcement did not go down. I think because people don't associate it, people people look at it as two very, very separate things, like, oh, Equifax got breached, and they might read about how it got breached, but that didn't necessarily sink in. And again, it's the security folks are like, oh, bad, and here's why. But because we haven't done a good job of working with you know development ops and everybody else, that connection there between us and everybody else in IT hasn't been made well enough so that people go, 
ooh, Equifax security team struts, yeah, let's not do this. Or they don't even bloody well know it's in the package anyway. It's just, hey, we need an idea download architecture. It's interesting, Chris. You know that we are the stewards of the central repository. Had 87 billion downloads last year so that we actually can see what the download patterns are for the industry. And one of the things that we found is that companies exponentially underestimate the amount of open source software they're using. Yeah, it's it's fascinating to, to see it in action. And I look at it, I have it from the other side. I'm very fortunate that I get to do advisements for certain companies and organizations. And, you know, when they're talking about developing and building their packages, I'm like, okay, what are you doing? Are you actually sitting down and coding or are you basically building a jigsaw puzzle? And so often when you get down to it, there's so much of that jigsaw puzzle is being pulled from the open source community, which I don't get me wrong, I absolutely love. But then you run into situations where it's like, okay, well, who is the steward of that package? When was that package last updated, edited changes? Whose eyes have been on that package to make sure the darn thing has actually got secure code in it, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it's, it's fascinating to see. I mean, you get to see it. It's, it's amazing. And to your point, 87 billion downloads, the amount of metadata you're able to pull off of that and help organizations understand, hey, these are the risks and here's why is, is fascinating. I'm opening up to the end chapter, the end of your chapter here, and there's three points that I want to bring up. One is about artificial intelligence. Uh, the other is biotechnology and nanotechnology. The, uh, the yeah. major points that you brought up at the end of your chapter. Under your chapter, it's called Final Thoughts. And the first one is technology and the edge of the cliff. Yes. What were you trying to get to there? I think what I'm trying to get to is is the fact that where we stand now and the technology that we've had in the last 20, 30 years is arguably nothing compared to what's coming down the line. And this isn't crystal ball coming down the line. This isn't us throwing the ball out 20, 30 years and going, well, maybe this is going to happen. This is looking at the advancements in, in healthcare and all around the nanotechnology, bio-nanotechnology, and the, the augmentation and integration of us as humans and technology. That's obviously one aspect of it. You look at actual artificial intelligence, not the stuff that's being sold by a percentage of our, of our vendors. And then you also look at everything else that's going on around what we're doing and how we are integrating technology. And like, there's an entire tsunami of stuff that is coming down the line that is going to impact us as people and humans and how we interact, how we work within the world, and yet we still haven't figured out freaking passwords, for God's sakes. The interesting thing following that thread of thought, and it actually moves right into your next one about artificial intelligence, we have a machine that can play Go better than any human being. Yes, yes. And you're, yeah. you're, the name of your section here is Artificial Intelligence Wakes Up. And I think Go was a <laughs> big wake up call for people. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and it is interesting, because I mean, if you look at, if you look at general, general artificial intelligence, in other words, the, the concept of building something that's, that's us, there's all sorts of specific AI and everything else. But if you look at general AI, in other words, something that is able to make intuitive decisions. 
I, I like the idea, I like the concept, but in order for it to do that, it's like anything, it has to have all the data all the time. So number one, you're handy, I mean, we already have an illusion of privacy anyway, but now that's gonna get completely stripped away because the only way an intelligent system can actually make our decision is if it knows what the hell we're doing. And it's got the predictive capability to understand what our next move is likely to be. So at that point, we've handed everything over to this system. And this system's gonna go a couple of things. Either one, it's gonna look at us and go, why the hell are we in the driving seat as humans? You look at what we've done with each other, what we've done with society, with life, with the earth, with the planet, with the animals, and it goes, get out of the driving seat, we're gonna take over. We end up working with it, at which point, as humans, we have to accept that we are not going to be the dominant species, we're not gonna be the most intelligent species, and we're sure as hell gonna to have to listen to somebody else, which we're not good at doing either. Or the argument is it does something else and looks around and goes, I'm out of here. And it's hard to ask because it grates on my nerves, but does this give Google and Facebook and Amazon the right to do what they're doing so that they can do that prediction? Oh, you know, here's my answer to this one. It depends which generation you're asking. I asked my daughter this the other day. I, I actually sat down and said, look, I'm doing a podcast next week, i.e. today, and some of this stuff is likely to come up. What are your thoughts? And I said, how do you feel about targeted marketing, targeted advertising? How do you feel about being told what you can, can't, shouldn't, shouldn't buy? Her answer was, hey, I like it because it means I don't have to go out there and figure it out. I don't have to do this. But when it crossed over to her personal life, in other words, you know, my daughter plays sports, she does other things. So she's, you know, she follows after her father. She's big for crying out loud. So if it started saying, hey, you need to lose weight or you need to do this or you need to, you know, you've gone to the hospital and or you've gone to visit the doctor and um, now I'm going to start recommending these 10 different pills, potions and crap for you. She's like, that's when it gets personal. That's when I don't like it. So it's interesting. And that's her generation. You know, she's 15 years, 15 going on, goodness knows how old years old, but that's her generation. They don't actually mind so much having basically the data sifted out. You look at our generation and we're like, uh, this reminds us of 1984. This is not necessarily gonna end well. But even if the recommendation engine isn't recommending that stuff to her, it still has that information and the capability to do that. Absolutely, and, and, and in her mind, and she's actually talked to a lot of her friends, she's like, I don't mind unless it crosses over the, the, like the personal barrier, which is so very, very different from how a lot of us feel, but flip it around. Perfect example, um, I was uh, in the United Kingdom uh, when the bomb went off in Manchester. And I was very, very close to it, i.e. about 10 miles away, and I got called in and I helped out. By the time I arrived on scene, they pulled the surveillance camera, they pulled the intelligence, and they were sending teams out to knock on specific people's doors. Not just knock on the doors, obviously. That is a surveillance nation. Arguably, in that situation, it worked effectively. Take another situation. Um, you look at Amazon, you look at Google, they're now starting, they have been using some of their search terms that, you know, you and I search for and gone, hey, you're searching for, you know, loss of breath, or you're searching for how do I get more salt into my diet? How do I do this? Hey, maybe you need to go visit the doctors because you have something wrong with you in these concerns. 
there's an argument to say that's not bad, but oh, it really scares the living hell out of me that they have all that information. It started in the public consciousness a couple years ago, and maybe it's just a story in a, an urban legend, but it makes sense. When a father found out his daughter was pregnant because she started receiving ads based upon what she had been purchasing at the local drugstore. Yeah, there's um, the shopping habit stuff. Uh, I can't remember who it was, but yeah, you got to look at like King Supers, Kroger's, Walmart's, and all the other ones where they're tracking that information and they're suddenly going, well, hang on, your shopping habit. A perfect example. Actually, something we have had for the last, goodness knows, 20, 30 years. You look at what um, Amex has been, has been absolutely amazing at tracking fraud in their card system because they track our habits, they know where we spend, they know how we spend, they know, you know, there was some interesting work that was done on like, they can now predict when I'm gonna fly next and all this kind of crazy stuff. It's actually amazing. And there's an argument to say I'm fine with that because it protects my it protects my money, my credit card and all the other shenanigans, but I'm not fine with it because now they know what I'm gonna be up to. So there's this really weird balance. I actually don't mind that data being out there if it's used to protect when it gets used for other reasons, predictive, potentially the predictive stuff, potentially it gets sold to marketers, potentially I go to get healthcare insurance and they're like, well, your shopping habits show that, you know, you're allergic to peanuts, therefore we're not going to insure you or, you know, whatever they want to come up with. That's when I have a problem with it. But if it's used to protect society more effectively by in, who, in whose view that well, so then that's the problem it's like is it a government protection is it an independent is it google is it amazon doing it it's like anything the data's already out there i wouldn't have a problem with it if i knew that the entity that was managing it was ethical was you know actually going to look after the data properly and was only really going to use it for uh, you know, without doing the whole betterment of society thing. But then the question is, 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 no, is you're being Peter Pan now. Exactly. I know. But that's the problem. It's like, if I could turn, if we could have something where it could predict if there was a problem with me, you know, basically you start looking at predictive algorithms that are built into data sets. If it could predict and say, Hey, look, Chris, you're heading off down a, a path of X, Y, Z for whatever reason. Great. It's nice to know that. But if it gets used against me by whoever's holding it, that's when the problem is. And, and you're right, it's Peter Pan land. Who holds that data? Who owns it? Who maintains it? And then how is that data being used? Uh, that's that's the problem with it. From artificial intelligence wakes up, you go into biotechnology and nanotechnology, which are something that I'm fascinated by. How are you relating those two? Oh, that stuff is amazing. Um, that's that's the That is really, really interesting stuff if you look at where healthcare is taking it. So the concepts have taken a molecular machine or a, a machine at a molecular level, a set of basically molecules built together, either you know gold carbon nanomolecules or something else, and being able to build enough sense into them to drop them into a body where they can both communicate back with the central system move around the body effectively and potentially go after Alzheimer's, cancer, and, you know, 101 other things that we need to actually deal with as humans. That is amazing. And the fact that we are so far down that line already is absolutely amazing. Whether we do it from a carbon-based or whether we do it from actual biotech is, is an amazing technology and amazing capability. And yeah, I'm, I'm both looking forward to it and terrified by it at the same time. 
About 30 years ago, David Gallertner from Yale wrote a book called Mirror Worlds. Yeah. And he talked exactly about what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And we're, and we're heading down it and we are charging down it headlong, amazing capabilities, amazing technologies, and absolutely no security whatsoever. Yeah. It's, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so back to the whole tinfoil hat thing. There is an argument to say in about yeah, 10, 15 years' time, that whole tinfoil hat thing is going to come really, really handy. You and I are going to be at RSA. Yeah. On March 4th. You are bringing a fantastic speaker. You're hosting Anne-Marie uh, Marie Zoyland. Yeah, I'm so freaking, I'm stoked by that. She is absolutely amazing. Why are you bringing her? What, what's she going to bring for us? Uh, I, I, just an entirely different perspective. I, I, she is fantastic because her business acumen and ability to take our knowledge and translate it into business and into back to the DevSecOps and turn it into a very compelling set of, hey, here's the metrics, here's the logic, here's the argument, here's why we're doing this and here's why we should do this and here's why we should continue to do this. She's fascinating at being able to do that. And she's just, I mean, her head screwed on is, is just, I, I love talking with her just because she's got such a different perspective from like those of us who are just the complete airhead geek crazy people. She has that amazing innate ability to listen, understand, acknowledge, learn with it, and then do a fantastic job of taking it to like a board level discussion. It's just amazing to watch how she actually analyzes, articulates, and then passes on. For those of you that do not or have not participated in DevSecOps Days at RSA conference. We are there on March 4th. And what we do is we have people like Chris, James Wickett, John Willis, Caroline Wong, Chensi Wang, host speakers that deserve more exposure for the work that they're doing. And that's why Chris has chosen Anne-Marie uh, because he thinks that her message should get wider dissemination. So Chris, I'm going to say that you and I both are inviting everybody please to come with us. If you can't attend the entire RSA conference, we actually have passes where you can come for DevSecOps days for free only. We can get you that code after this. And also that code will get you a complete pass to the expo hall floor for the rest of the week. That's fantastic. I didn't realize we had that. That's awesome. Because I was going to say we'll just forge everybody's passes, but you know, we'd probably get yelled at for doing that. No, I'll just give out the code. <laughs> <laughs> it's easier, simpler, less hassle. Right. We don't get yelled at as much. Chris, it's always great to talk to you. Thank you so much for your contributions to the book, to the community, and all that you're doing. Very much looking forward to continuing this at RSA conference on March 4th. Yeah, as always, Mark, just thank you very, very much for having me. Just an absolute honor and a pleasure, as always. Thank you. This is the DevSecOps Days podcast. DevSecOps Days podcast is supported by OWASP, dedicated to enabling organizations to conceive, develop, acquire, operate, and maintain applications that can be trusted and with support from the Sonatype Nexus platform, allowing companies to automatically control open source risks.